Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. Here's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But she's our guest, writer Rebecca Slayman. I ask for something to eat. I'm hungry as a hog. So I get brown rice, seaweed, and a dirty hot dog. I got a hole in my stomach where it disappeared. Then you ask why I don't live here. Honey, I think you're really weird. Well, your grandpa's cane, it turns into a sword. Your grandma prays to pictures that are pasted on a board. Everything in my pockets, your uncle steals. Then you ask why I don't live here. Honey, I can't believe that you're for real. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. I think that's the first time anybody has ever chosen anything funny from at the beginning of <laughs> the podcast. Well, well done. So why why that one? Well, a factor of it was the way that Dylan delivers his lyrics is the best way it can possibly be done. So why try to do something justice that I know I can't? That one <laughs> expresses everything I love about young Dylan, how he's relatable, how he's funny. He's like perfectly for the current moment of like random meme humor, but it's also biting and like, I don't know. I just love it. I love that song. It makes me laugh. I love the idea of him doing random meme <laughs> humor but i think i think you've really got something because on the way in i just happened on my shuffle to hear bob dylan's 115th dream and Mm -hmm. it was it's still funny and Mm -hmm. it's got so much energy and it's just so it's so modern and it totally expresses how he's like trying to do the beats thing where it's like there's all these literary references Mm -hmm. and kind of snobbish thing going on but also like they're pulling pranks. They're being silly. They're making each other laugh. That's what I think, like, that's what I associate that kind of humor with as well. And, you know, it's also people now call it Dylan's dad humor or granddad humor. (laughs) But, you know, in 115th Dream, there's that terrible pun where he says uh, there's people down in the Bowery screaming, ban the bum. Now, that's, Mm -hmm. that's just as shitty as anything modern that he you know, any modern joke that he makes. It's funny, but it's also terrible. Exactly. And do you remember when you first when you first heard that song or that album? Uh, yeah. So I first, I'm a pretty recent Dylan convert. I only got into him like during the pandemic in about 2020. And so I started, you know, right with the early stuff, the protest music. That's what really got me hooked. And then, it, you know, it transitions from that into this pretty quickly and so it just kind of opened my mind to all the different Dylans that were yet to come and the duality of man that was really appealing to me. Wow because I mean when we ask that question of most guests they they go back to their childhood and they talk about their parents having records or whatever you literally just uncovered all this stuff in the last three years that's amazing. Yeah I mean it kind of makes sense when you think about our current political time, especially Mm -hmm. in America. I mean, I came across someone who, you know, was at the March on Washington, and then he was here, he's still here today, and he comments about, like, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. It's someone who connects and collapses history, both in his music and who he is and his place in history. So, yeah, that's sort of what hooked me in. How did you manage, did you listen to, because you know, presumably, I've read your stuff online, mm-hmm. you know you're Dylan, and uh, did you listen to it chronologically, or how did you get into it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was kind of consuming everything chronologically, so the music, the movies, um, etc., and then the later stuff kind of jumbles together, 
I think because it's harder to connect it to the time period it's in. I mean, once we get past like the gospel era and 80s music, it just turns into like what Dylan has been wanting to do the whole time. Like his love songs, stuff about aging, the rest of it's kind of a jumble, but I definitely started doing everything chronologically because I was curious about the history of it. Something hit me last night. I was listening to, I was doing something which I don't do nearly enough, which is listen to Time Out of Mind in the dark on headphones, which is really the only <laughs> time it really, really comes comes alive for me. Honestly, I've, I've heard it in too many cars, but at night on headphones, it sounds fantastic. And it occurred to me, I thought, you know, we take for granted now that for the last 25 years, Dylan has been using the blues as a really uh, mm-hmm. useful format. But like you mentioned 80s Dylan just then and the, the gospel era, the blues thing really only kicks in from the, you know, the early 90s, mm-hmm. doesn't it? I mean, from, from those two acoustic albums and then, uh, uh, you know, apart from the, the slight sort of sprinkling of blues at the beginning, but really from Good As I've Been To You, Well Gone Wrong, Time Out Of Mind, then you're into, there's a bluesiness to an awful lot of the music there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading about Time Out Of Mind in the, well, current, as we're recording, issue of Mojo. And they were saying the same thing. I think, you know, Daniel Lanois didn't want that kind of regular blues thing, but Dylan Mm. somehow felt very infused with that spirit, and it seemed to come out of nowhere. My theory about that, because I think so much about how different generations relate to Dylan, it all goes back to, like, usually people's childhoods. And it seems like at that point in his life, Dylan kind of was thinking back to his childhood and his influences and has kind of been building on that ever since. Like he's introducing us to the Americana that he grew up with. Mm. I mean, did you have a background in folk and blues which helped you to sort of hear his music? Or, I mean, what was your, before you discovered Dylan, what sort of music were you into? Yeah, I definitely had the language of it. Um, My parents took me to a lot of concerts when I was younger, like real local folk artists and singer-songwriters. So I had that language, but um, mostly, I mean, I listen to pop music. I listen to what's popular now. And definitely my parents influenced uh, my mom from the 70s. That was her era. And my dad likes classic rock too. But Yeah, Dylan was kind of the one who broke it open for me personally in discovering um, classic rock and early rock music. And I just love it. (laughs) Did you lose friends because of, you know, your love? I mean, honestly, I mean, you know, how how old are you? I'm 24. And how many 24-year-olds are into, you know, really deeply into Bob Dylan? Oh, well, it's funny you should ask because I definitely gained a lot of friends Um, in my discovering of Bob Dylan. And Mm -hmm. I was just as shocked as you are to learn that there are so many young people out there online who love Bob Dylan in the way that like people loved him when he first came on the scene, like Mm -hmm. screaming girls lust after him. (laughs) It's all out there online. And, you know, my face when I first discovered that there was Bob Dylan fan fiction out there. (laughs) Oh, my God. I laughed so hard. Yeah, there's a lot of young people out there who like Dylan. And it's kind of like a key to unlocking friendships with cool people who you might not otherwise relate to because it is kind of unexpected for a 24-year-old girl to be into Dylan. But, you know, it's the mark of an intellectual. It's the mark of someone with taste. <laughs> well, this, well, this is kind of the, you know, the reason we started this podcast because we realized that if you're going to have a conversation with someone, it's much 
easier to bond quickly over a shared interest than it is to sit and talk about them and have those 10 minutes of toe-curling awkwardness while you get relaxed. Whereas if you you have a common experience or a common uh, love of of someone's music, you're straight in there. Yeah, absolutely. It's like that's the beauty of fandom of any kind. And, you know, kind of the danger too is people are so passionate about it that they can get into some hairy territory but yeah overall it's it's a beautiful thing i mean on social media particularly the mm-hmm. talking about bob dylan can be a well it's a complicated sort of battlefield out there i mean it can either be a very warm supportive place or it can be a very a place of great sort of one-upmanship and, and last words and pettiness and i mean how do you feel about all that totally yeah i think that is a strength of young people now is they have that kind of Dylan-esque, I don't give a fuck Mm. attitude towards it. So I do see, especially older people online who have not grown up with the internet, get really into like debates and personal attacks and stuff. But, you know, Gen Z, young millennials, they don't care. They will roast you. They will make fun (laughs) of you and they will have a good time doing it. Um, And that's what I enjoy about the young communities online is they're so witty and they understand the platform so well. And they really don't care about disagreeing about the little stuff. Well, they also, this is only a conversation I've had this week. I'll back up it and explain where I'm coming from here. But I was watching the first two parts of that new Phil Spector documentary, which is largely about his history as a a nasty murderer (laughs) rather than a producer of pop records. And... I was sort of caught a bit off guard by this because I presumed it was going to take it all on board and and problematise it and tell a sort of complex story and and try and touch on all these points. And it really seemed not to be doing that. And I sent it to um, David Hepworth and he said, well, I sent him a message and he hadn't seen it, but he sent me a piece by Zadie Smith and she was Mm -hmm. talking about how young people perceive things online at the moment. I'm going to try and read this to you without making it too long, but it's, it's, it's been really good points. They're talking about Tar, the Kate Blanchett film. Oh, yes. And oh she God, said... I love Tar. Well, I, I'm, the, God, I'm the only one here <laughs> who hasn't seen it. But she said, oh. we of Tar's generation can be quick to lambast those we call behind their backs the youngs. But speaking for myself, I'm the one severely triggered by statements like Chaucer is misogynistic or Virginia Woolf was a racist. Not because I can't see that both statements are partially true, but because I am of that generation whose only real shibboleth was, is it interesting, into which broad category both evils and flaws could easily be fit. Not because you agreed with them personally, but because they had the potential to be analysed, just like anything else. Whereas, if you grew up online, the negative attributes of individual humans are immediately disqualifying. The very phrase ad hominem has been rendered obsolete, almost incomprehensible. An argument that is directed against a person rather than the position they are maintaining. Online, a person is the position they're maintaining and vice versa. Mm. And I thought... Zadie Smith said that? Zadie Smith said that. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not what you'd expect. But it got me thinking about... You know, the the whole sort of Twitter arena and the whole the Dylan conversations and about how hard it is to mm-hmm. present a nuanced discussion of anybody in such a brief, well, put it on a platform that, that favours brevity, that favours hardline positions and binary arguments. And mm-hmm. I guess that's what I was saying about Dylan is that it's it's hard to to dive into that territory. What I think is so interesting about that is that kind of 
encapsulates what can be dangerous about fandoms and young people is they don't have the life experience, the academic experience to sort of hold that nuance. But I do see that much more in analyzing living people and being like, we should not buy this person's art. We should not consume this person's art because it will be supporting these harmful ideas. But what I've observed in the more vintage communities, like young people who really like stuff from the 60s and the 70s, they are able to hold a more nuanced view of people because it is in the past and it's a time that we didn't live through, we don't totally understand. And that kind of explains why you're able to like Dylan. I mean, you can't agree with every single thing he said or appreciate anyone from the past without understanding that truth. And so it's like you said, like people who like Dylan probably have a more complicated understanding of the world and are able to move beyond that simplistic understanding of people. That's a really good point. I completely agree. Um, I know you haven't seen Tar yet, uh, Luke, but I'll just because Rebecca referred to it and I saw, I'm going to see it for the second time uh, next week because I think it's... Yes. I described it to somebody as having a lot of um, similarities to uh, a Long Dylan song. Like, mm. it's just super, it, it exists in many dimensions uh, without, mm-hmm. you know, being a science fiction uh, thing. Mm-hmm. It just, Kate Blanchett plays it straight and mm-hmm. you don't really quite know what's going on in her head. But uh, it made me think about Dylan also because, you know, if you read the reviews, this is not a also, uh, this will go out like months from now, so hopefully everybody will have seen it by then. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you read the reviews, it's about a, a woman who is in a very powerful artistic position who abuses her power. That, that's all you need to know. And von Karajan, um, the former director of the Berlin Philharmonic, is mentioned because she's the director of the Berlin Philharmonic. But I, it made me think about uh, Picasso, who treated women horribly and basically, you know, really was kind of a monster, although he was a genius. Uh, Even people like Van Morrison and his, you know, (laughs) nutty stance on COVID. It made me think of, but it also made me think that nobody, weirdly, well, there was one lawsuit that sort of passed uh, quite quickly a couple of years ago, wasn't there, where somebody finally thought, wait a second, no one's taken down Bob Dylan yet. Mm. So... I don't know anything more about that, but it's odd that Dylan, although he can be, you know, people call him a a grump and a weirdo and all all sorts of things, people don't usually call, don't refer to him as, you know, a monster, uh, an abuser. Um, And yet he's been at the forefront of his various fields for longer than anybody alive. And... Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it made me feel kind of warmly about Dylan because he, although he is a deeply weird human being, um, I still feel very, when I, he makes me laugh and, and he makes me fe- go sort of um, gooey sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's wonderful, isn't he? And you have to, uh, okay, there's a lot of different discourse about parasocial relationships right now, like the, the relationships people have with famous people that are obviously not reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And we feel like we know these people pretty intimately. And that is obviously a fallacy. We, we can't really know them. We don't know what they're like. 
um, when they're not in the spotlight. But with someone with a career as long and as storied as Dylan, the fact that nothing's really come out yet that's so egregious is probably a good sign. And yeah. I think I think I'm going to stick by him for the moment. It's hard. It's complicated. <laughs> No, it's uh, it is surprising he hasn't been taken down. When you when you think of uh, so many, particularly sixties and seventies icons who are now no longer in the mix because they've they basically disappeared, uh, or they've been canceled. And it's not a, not a word I I particularly like to to use. So I, I'll I'll move on. Um, <laughs> I know that uh, I think I've read that you uh, well I know you love Hearts of Fire. <laughs> So let's yeah. let's go straight to the the whole entire sure. reason. Go to the fridge. And the entire reason we have you on the podcast. Um, yeah. No, it was your your pinned tweet on your Twitter yeah. feed uh, mm-hmm. is is that moment from Bob from which I you know I've seen the film. I saw it I think when it came out, and I saw it. I had to see it. I was forced to see it a few years <laughs> ago because uh, we had to kind of review it on the podcast. Oh, and wow. uh, we did the films of Bob Dylan. It's, it's a whole uh, films of Bob Dylan um, episode. But anyway, I love your You Want Some Eggs. Um, <laughs> what would you call homage? Mm-hmm. I, would, I would urge everyone to, to view your... <laughs> Just uh, leave it on a loop, you know, for So where, where, minutes, where yeah. do you stand on... Uh, have I got you wrong on Hearts of Fire? No, I love that. I love that movie. It's so funny. Dylan's clearly wasted the entire time oh, yeah. of filming. He cannot act, which I mean, when you think at it on a macro scale, how is he how can he not act? I mean, he's been acting and lying his whole life. How is it so bad? The writing is awful. The directing, I mean, it killed that director yes, is what, how it yeah, goes, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I take a lot of joy in things that are so bad that they're entertaining. Because then at the end of the day, if they entertain you, doesn't that mean it's kind of good? I don't know. I have a great time watching that film. That weird line about, the, you know, I knew I wasn't going to win a Nobel Prize. No, yes. I mean, that's just delicious, isn't it? How, how did they do that? How did they know? It's too good. <laughs> I would. Yeah. I think I'd like to watch just Dylan in that. The problem is that there's other, the other people like Dylan is so off his face and so bizarre and ha- and really doesn't resemble a human being. But then there's the you know the female uh, Fiona. Lead, who, Fiona who's, Fiona. who's yeah. you know bless her she's trying her best, <laughs> but she's she's terrible. But without any in- interest or charm. Mm. And, and uh, you want to talk about like inappropriate relationships. Oh, it's oh. all about her being like just yeah. turned 18 and he's like a washed up musician. Yeah. Obviously, like a star is born kind yeah. of situation. But they make a lot of really creepy references to it. <laughs> and it ends in that song that he sings about, I got a couple more years on you, baby. I know, That's really. All. That's what? pretty explicit. It's written by Shel Silverstein. Yeah. There's just so many twists and turns here. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, maybe it'll get a re release. Oh I mean, because we had to, I think we only saw it because Robin, our producer, yeah. had a, a DVD. Yeah, I think around. he managed to share a copy because it's not easily traceable, is it? You can't track it. In down. fact, how did you see it? 
as someone who's grown up online, I'm very good at locating bootlegs. Right. Yeah. Um, and there is now a publicly available thing on YouTube that was uploaded by me. So I am single-handedly <laughs> responsible <laughs> for the revival of Hearts of Fire. <laughs> Excellent. That's as it should be. That's I wonder if Hearts of Fire has found its time. Do you think... I mean, how do you, you know, your, your other Dylan-loving friends, are they also Hearts of Fire nuts, or is that just particular to you? It is something that I'm famous for, but I think we all <laughs> share an enjoyment, a laugh about Hearts of Fire, yeah. And you love Empire Burlesque as well, don't you? Yes, oh my God, I love that, because it is so 80s, mm. and I guess... It is different if you live through the time when that came out and you're like, oh, my God, new Dylan, what's it going to be like? <laughs> and then met with that. But in retrospect, I think it's a lot of fun. I love, has anybody seen my love? Yeah. I was thinking about uh, reading that one, actually. Oh, that I, video I is, that. is appalling it's, as well, isn't it? It's incredible. <laughs> it I mean, most, most videos of that vintage are, pre are pretty appalling, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, yeah. And you're yeah, also a big uh, fan of a track that I'm a big fan of, which uh, Luke is going to cringe when I mention it, Wiggle Wiggle. Wiggle Wiggle, yeah. That is mostly a joke. I don't know if people are listening to that one on the regular, but just the fact that people have that reaction like, oh, it stinks so bad, we hate it. That makes it like a prime example of something that will always make people mad. I love it. Well, That's I love funny. it. I actually, I, I, if it comes on shuffle or whatever, I'll dance around mm -hmm. to Wiggle Wiggle, which is what I think he wrote it for. It's yeah. a, you know, it's like, a, it's an old, I mean, I don't even, th I think it's a good song. I'm not kidding. I, I think it's, <laughs> it's like Great Balls of Fire or something. It, it, you jump around to it. It's like a bowl of soup. Like a mm. bowl of soup. Exactly. Yeah. You know how bowls of soup jump around. And wiggle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, they jump around in, in Bob Dylan's world. <laughs> they do. It's sweet. It's sweet that he wrote it for like kids or whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. So, and then what about, um, well, I was listening to, I mean, he's still funny, isn't he? I was listening to my own version of you the other day. And that's just, the humor is, it's, it doesn't make me laugh the way some of the other stuff does, but it does make me smile. You know, the, the, the Scarface Pacino and the, the Godfather Brando and it's it's one long joke really I love that song I think that might be my favorite song from that album mm. yeah it's wonderful because it's using references references like like make us laugh it's a good form of humor and it is kind of deep but you know kind of clouded in the way that Dylan lyricism usually is I like that one because there's so much you can do research into and be like oh, what reference is he pulling from here? What's mm. he doing? And clues us into his, his mind palace. So you must have been in the middle of basically catching up with the entire recorded work of Bob Dylan when Rough and Rowdy Ways kind of poked its head through, I guess, yeah, and, and messed yeah. with the it order. Was, it was perfect timing, actually, because I was like, how often does this happen? You get into an artist and immediately you have new content that mm. you can enjoy with everyone else and see how the dynamics of the fandom and Dylan Academia play out. And the fact that it was well received was a big relief. It's like, yeah. okay, this guy's still good. I can keep going. <laughs> I have something new to sort of sink my teeth into. Yeah, I love that album. And you mentioned Dylan Academia. I mean, how do you feel about that world? Because um, it, well, how do you feel about it? Hmm, definitely complicated. Mm. I mean, the people who 
are able to make money off of like publishing books around him. I feel more overall negative towards like the people who are able to make it through just kind of enforce the stereotypes that it's just old white men who like Dylan and all have the same kind of idea of the mythos of his. But the people who are, you know, scholarly in nature, like my friend Laura Tenshirt, who does definitely Dylan. I love her work. I love her academia. Yeah, she's Um, I mean, I'm an English major. I love studying Shakespeare. And it's kind of a lot like that. Mm. It satisfies this like, nerdy part of me that loves figuring out intricacies of everyone that I love and and how the fandom works how his legacy works uh so I like it to a degree the concept of it but um I'm not a huge fan of all the books <laughs> no I'm, I'm kind of with you and I a name that I'd like I'd like to mention at this point because I think some of the things he said deserve criticism is Clinton Halen you know, totally. I, I mean, I was flicking through one of his books last night because he's one of those writers who I've read an awful lot by. And I think I can refer to some of the things he said, but actually I need to look him up just to check. And usually around the late 70s era, he's, you know, he's punctuating his uh, his paragraphs with some pretty casual, pointed, uh, repetitive misogyny. And, you know, he's talking about, for example, I think this is the slow train coming sessions. The men in that band are referred to as several pedigree session musicians. The women are referred to as female singers. <laughs> sometimes they're female vocalists. Sometimes they're gals. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just... When one reference comes along, you think, well, they are female and they are singers. I'll let that pass. But then it, it just becomes repetitive and that's all he's got to say about them. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I've it, seen some pretty egregious <sighs> stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's a good job he's not on Twitter, I think, probably. But I do think it's appropriate to call it out because he's written a lot of books about Dylan and he likes to, well, somebody who works for him likes to publicise him as probably the greatest authority. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. the phrase that used to get trotted out when one of his books used to come out. Well, it's his publisher, clearly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah but I, I don't get the impression that he's going, oh, shush, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean... Can you think of any other examples along those lines that have uh, that pissed you off? Well, yeah, there is actually, I don't know if I want to name him, but okay. there is someone who is on Twitter who is a pretty big voice and has written books who has gotten in the DMs of teenage girls who are in the Dylan fandom Jesus. and is constantly kind of being creepy around him. Luckily, everyone kind of knows by this point, but is like really gross how that kind of stuff happens. And it all comes from, yeah, this misogyny, this inherent thinking women are lesser. Yeah, so, I mean, that shows up in a lot of places, but places where old men kind of congregate are not generally the safest place for for women. Yeah, and I guess within the definition of academia, Mm -hmm. there is a certain trope which is kind to old white men who have an unquestioned authority because they are professors or experts and mm-hmm. they tend to be surrounded by younger students who are very impressionable. And that's that's quite troubling. Totally. And even people who don't have any accomplishments at all have a much easier time getting published if you find your niche and you act like you have authority on it. I guess what I'm saying is that I'm always very wary of institutions that by their very nature are not questioned. Mm -hmm. 
patriotism, for example. The reason patriotism is so persuasive is because you're not allowed to question it. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, I have to say to speak up for uh, well, for Christopher Ricks, I'm going. I'm finally reading Dylan's Visions of Sin. I don't know. Do you know that book, Rebecca? It's uh, I don't know. I don't know uh, that one. Christopher Ricks. He's still teaching. He's like 85 now. I think. I think he's teaching in Boston, and <laughs> I've been picking up uh, the Christopher Ricks Visions of Sin for the last couple of months, and it's got a kind of a lightness of sort of heart to it where I just think he's a good guy. He was the first heavyweight academic to do a course on Dylan. That's who Christopher Ricks is. So that took a lot of, took a lot of guts. So, you know, in defense of, uh, of certain uh, academic Yeah, uh, I mean, guys. as far as I'm concerned, academia is the only place, like they have accepted me. A lot of them have. Richard Thomas is wonderful. They have brought me in and they are the ones that pay me to talk about something that I love. So I have a, a fondness for academia. And I would like to talk at more conferences yeah. if they will have me. So you've been to this retrospective thing, which I would mm-hmm. love to see. This huge, gigantic uh, retrospective. Um, yeah. Can you say anything about that? God is yeah. So I was asked to come down there to sort of speak at originally the opening of the retro spectrum, but there was some scheduling issues. So it ended up being closing it out. And it was, it was kind of funny. They had all of, I was counted among the academics, all these little academics given a little presentation about what we thought of Bob Dylan, why he's relevant, why we should have, you know, his art displayed at all. There was, you know, all these donors. It was a big, it was a big soiree event. But the best part was getting to walk through the museum. And there is a lot, a lot of artwork. I mean, it's kind of unbelievable that Dylan has made all this stuff in just a couple of years, especially the more recent stuff that is just massive. And it's like, how is this guy, <laughs> how is this guy who didn't want to sign all those autographs <laughs> with the auto pen <laughs> making... <laughs> making these enormous paintings with pretty detailed stuff i mean it's it's incredible uh even if you know he's probably projecting something on a wall and tracing over it i was gonna still, say that it must be something like that because they are film stills yeah. the, the origin of a lot of these of these compositions are film stills aren't they yeah yeah i'm really grateful for the people who are so obsessed they can go through and find exactly each yeah. reference point for got each of these of this things. world yeah 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 right exactly but the best part is uh when you look at it closer and you can look at side by side the still and the painting hmm. is he will change little details of it and put like a magazine in it with you know, country music stars, he will change little elements. And that's where you can see Dylan's like his brain working when he's watching these things. Um, Yeah, it's kind of it's it's overwhelming, to be honest, like to try to take in all this stuff that is not very accessible. You can't spend time with it the way that you spend time with the songs and the stuff that's come before. Um, I hope more of it is able to be accessible at some point in the near future so we can all kind of have our discourse about the paintings and have our ideas of why he did this or that. Um, so I'd, I'd like for that to be published somewhere. 
Yeah, and it sounds, well, it sounds like he paints like he writes songs. When you were saying that about, you know, he does a, paint, a painting and he'll, he'll ape a, uh, a copy a film still, but then he'll change something, some small detail. It's like a line like, you know, the cuckoo is a pretty bird, she warbles as she flies, which is a straight mm. lift from, you know, that Clarence Ashley song. And then I'm preaching the word of God, I'm putting out your eyes. Oh, well, that's different, you know. And it's like you, <laughs> you make something familiar and you present it to some, your audience as something familiar and known, and then you go, aha, but I'm doing this with it, you know. I guess it's hmm. a similar process. I don't know. Yeah, and that reminds me of the way that he's always kind of borrowed stuff from other people to create his stuff in the folk tradition, you mm -hmm. can say. I think that Dylan, if anything, what he misses about the time that he was growing up was that no one would fact check. <laughs> like right now, <laughs> yeah. we can all look online and find out where each reference is from. We can say, oh, you stole that, you stole that, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's something that I think just Dylan couldn't conceive of when he makes art. It's just like what he takes from his environment and and runs with it. But I wonder what happened when about 2001 when he thought, I'm going to start loading my songs with these very, very specific references that anybody can mm. Google and find out. Mm. And then thought, I mean, I'm projecting, I have no idea what he thinks, as you say, but <laughs> and maybe he thought that's part of the fun. Maybe it's like a little, like a little trail for people to discover, <laughs> a little trail of breadcrumbs, ah, you know. Yeah, that could be. That could be he's doing it intentionally. I guess we can, we can never really know. But I think it's great because he knows how to do it. Like, it's got its own internal logic, which I don't particularly understand, but I'm sure it does in his head. But I was reading, you've got a review online of uh, Girl from the North Country, mm, the Bob Dylan yes. musical, which uh, <laughs> you refer to as a uh, jukebox musical, which I, I think you're right. You know, some people, when they put it out, they said, this is not a jukebox musical, but it mm. is. And mm -hmm. I, I think that the people who put it together, or rather the person who put it together, I suspect was trying to do what Dylan does. And he was throwing in characters who were writers or lovers or racists or old pervs or kind of with quotes crazy or a woman who has Alzheimer's. And I thought, I felt, I saw it a couple times when it was done first here. And I loved the, the song arrangements and the music and the cast. And I thought all oh, that was great. And I felt kind of sick watching the story. Mm -hmm. And I, when I read your review, I thought, oh, nobody's really said that. But I, you more or less said the same thing. Yeah, I mean, the beauty of Dylan's strange characters and strange behaviors that seem kind of random is how he describes it and how he paints the picture. If you just put those people on a stage, it's not going to convey the same emotion or the same like storytelling prowess. It was really annoying, honestly, how it didn't seem to have an emotional through line or a reason why any of these things should exist. I, having studied Dylan's lyrics, I have no doubt that everything in there is put there for a reason. The way he delivers his songs, the way he sings, the structures, they're all like a perfect distillation of an idea. But yeah, Girl from the North Country, I really like the song arrangements. I like the layering of the songs and the way one would transition into another. And all the actors were incredible. But there wasn't enough of a reason for any of that to happen, for it to be there at all. I left feeling confused, but not in like a satisfied way that you would listening to a Dylan song. The way that people are saying this is not a jukebox musical, 
it totally is. And it falls into the same pitfalls that every other jukebox musical does. One of my other passions is theater and musical theater. So I'm very well versed of like how wrong and how right this kind of thing can go. And it's like, why does it have to be so on the nose in some ways in describing literally what is happening in the song? But in other ways, yeah, there's these things happening that are not realistic because we don't want to see like the actual horrors of the 1930s. But also it's kind of edgy in the way or pretending to be edgy, like, oh, we're going to have all these white people say the N-word on stage Mm. because that's just how it was back then. Like, you can't have both of those things be true because then there's no emotional heart to it. There's no reason to, like, relive other people's trauma. There's no point to it. It's just for its own sake. So that's why I think it didn't work. Here's something that I've been uh, I've been saving actually, Rebecca, because uh, this is a, a quote. I'm going to quote you at yourself, and oh, I'm just no. interested. I, I'm in, <laughs> no, it's it's nothing. It, it's I just it's it's intrigued me because uh, Luke was interviewed by the Financial Times for this article uh, last year, and you were also uh, interviewed. And so the quote is: Younger Dylan fans are mainly queer, racially, and gender diverse, and present their love of Dylan in a different fashion. Mm-hmm. So. What fashion is that? I'm, I I was intrigued when I read that, and I'm still intrigued. Yeah, so kind of what I was saying earlier about the humor of it is definitely a, a good starting point because Dylan, when he was young, was like iconically young. He was the counterculture. He was against all these stupid older people who didn't get him but were like such buffoons. I mean, you watch Don't Look Back and the journalists are just ridiculous i mean they're saying like why are you famous why are you popular like what that's that's not how you do journalism you don't make up questions on the spot it was all kind of a farce so all these situations that he was in where he would just take the piss out of them as some would say is a really good like he's a figure of youth rebellion and youth we are going to change the world and we are smarter than you. We're better than you. It's that kind of like rebellious nature. That's a huge part of it. So that's what grabs people in. And people who might say like, I don't relate to the mainstream. I'm someone who exists on the outskirts because I'm trans, because I'm gay, because I'm black, anything like that. But they don't fit into these little cults in their school, the little cliques. Um, They find community in people who also enjoy the past and another time when they feel like they could have been celebrated into the words of someone who often talks about people at the fringes and the humanity that exists within everyone. So what that ends up being is a fandom who has a lot of fun who isn't afraid of taking the piss out of Dylan now because he's like an old man. What does he know? What does he, what does he know about the current day and age? Um, he's so silly. There's kind of a, an irreverence towards everything in the same way Dylan was when he was a kid. And all these people are able to find each other and find friendship and belonging in this fandom. And I think that's really beautiful. And you can see the differences and how it plays out online, how people talk about how 
They love Dylan and no one really gets them for it, but we have each other. Um, whereas older people, everyone kind of knows who Dylan is among older people and it comes with baggage and it comes with an understanding. But young people, they thrive in the fact that no one really knows who he is and they only he belongs to them in a way. That's very beautiful to hear. So what about the other end of the spectrum? Was, was there anything in Dylan's canon that for you just stuck out and made you think, oh my God, that really <laughs> does not, I wish he hadn't said that, that does not translate well, that has not aged well. Anything, any howlers? Yeah, I mean, when he was in his gospel era, you know, he would do those sermons mm. um, and he did say some stuff there yeah. that was pretty homophobic and, you know, San Francisco is a city full of sinners and stuff like that. But with Dylan, you can never take him at his word and especially not one era of Dylan to the next. So there are some times where he said stuff that's like, what? <laughs> Why would you say that? But I think luckily it didn't really come through in his art in any way. And when you're a fan of someone, it's primarily about the art. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and I'm now, when I read an interview with Bob Dylan, if people get very excited about something he said, my gut reaction is, well, he's not telling the truth. <laughs> you know, he did this interview last year where he, he was discussing his favorite TV programs and mm -hmm. he talked about Coronation Street and Father Brown. And I was interested because I've just been in both of them. And I thought, wow, I'm in two of Bob Dylan's favorite TV shows. And I thought, no, hang on, hang on. He's not being serious. When he says he binged Coronation Street, I mean, you, you can't binge Coronation Street. It's been going since 1960. I'm not even sure all the episodes will exist. And it's just nonsensical. And quite often now when I read it, interview with him I think well he's no he's not telling the truth mm -hmm. but that's quite a good position to be in for someone of his stature where no one takes well any put it this way people have the option as to whether they want to take you seriously or not and it's probably just as valid whether you don't or do but people yeah. did take that seriously you know everybody yeah, that's what I mean and everybody I'm thinking, went oh, nuts. Come on. <laughs> surely not but actually that that reminds me of I've got another Rebecca Slayman quote in front of me uh, this uh, this is another one that I really like I think Bob is obsessed with culture that he hasn't affected which I think is a really interesting quote. And it made me think about, you wouldn't have thought he'd, he'd affected Coronation Street, for instance. You'd think he'd, he'd watch that for, you know, uh, relaxation if he was, if he indeed he did watch it. But, you know, he's been mentioned on Coronation Street. There's there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of episodes where somebody says, oh, you know, I were at that concert where they called him Judas, you know, um, and uh, so he's even referenced in Coronation Street. But anyway, going back to that quote, which I think is really interesting, he's obsessed with culture that he hasn't affected. You wrote that. Um, I'm not sure where. I think it was a tweet. I'm trying to think of what inspired that. Maybe it was all those songs he covered, the Sinatra songs. Yes. Or... Yeah. I mean. That goes back to like, he loves this image of Americana, like totally disconnected from everything else, like totally the opposite of the way we live now, which mm. is just these little towns that he grew up in where you could really make up any any lie about yourself and and you can be whoever you wanted once you left that place. But it's this kind of depression era aesthetic that he keeps going back to and kind of the persona that he's adopted now, especially on the in time radio hour um, where he's like, Oh, well, <laughs> back when I was a kid, yeah. like it's kind of like a, a Midwestern persona that he's adopted and that's what inspired it. And yeah, then he shows up 
nowadays on things you would never expect. He was on uh, Dharma and Greg, <laughs> like something yeah. totally outside of the sphere of culture that he's part of. He loves stuff that is still unexpected from him. And he shies away from things that would call back to an era of his or a world where he is ultra famous. He likes to live outside of that reality, I think. Yeah. Well, when you live outside the law, you must be mm -hmm. honest. Well, you're, you're so right about Theme Town Radio Hour, because I remember when it first came out, I guess, what, 2006 or something, everybody pounced on the fact that all the records he played in the first episode were from before Bob Dylan became a recording artist, which is not true, actually, because he played Jimi Hendrix. But that was the kind of the impression that everyone got. They said, oh, my God, he's obsessed with this world as you say, that he didn't affect, that existed without him. But, I mean, of course you'd want to be, wouldn't you? I mean, if you're going to discuss culture, and you're someone like Bob Dylan, who has made this enormous imprint on popular culture, you don't really want to discuss your place within that, do you? You want to discuss what was important to you before that happened, I guess. Exactly. And I mean, I think what inspired that thing that I said was the philosophy of modern song. I mean, everyone's like, why, why are these the songs that he chose? They're all songs that no one really knows anymore. They're from the 50s and 40s. What is drawing him to these songs? And when you are that influential, I think delving into something that you have influenced maybe comes off as egotistical because it's like, oh, well, I've already mastered this. I guess I don't want to waste my time like delving into something that I already know why something's like that. I know I saw it happen. I saw the culture unfold. But when you go back to your roots and your own influences, that's probably much more interesting to him. Well, what did you make of the philosophy of modern song as a book? <laughs> well, <laughs> in two minutes or less. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a huge I wasn't a huge fan. I read it and I was like, not really for me. I couldn't relate to it much and it was about songs I didn't really know and didn't really care to know yeah. <laughs> and some of the descriptions he gets a little crazy <laughs> I would say being nice about it mm. he gets a little crazy into some of these made up these fictions in which these songs exist I don't know but I respect everyone who likes it I know that definitely Dylan, Laura, has a lot of really interesting things to say about it. Yeah, and I'll listen to that, but I don't really need to engage with I'm, the book anymore. If it makes you feel any better, and even if it doesn't, I'm with you. I think it's a, a really shoddy, half-assed book. And mm -hmm. I'm subscribing to a service that sends me Dylan records at the moment. I'm nearly, nearly at the mm. end. Anyway, they sent me World Gone Wrong the other day. And I looked at the liner notes and I thought, oh, I remember when this style of writing was new. Because that's 30 years ago. And when those liner notes appeared, you were like, oh, my God, this is inside the mind of Bob Dylan. This is what he thinks about music. This is fascinating. Fast forward 30 years and it's, um, you know, this song takes no prisoners. It can stand up and make you laugh or it can make you cry. And you oh, come on. I've heard this. Well, I've, even, you've yeah. done this before. Also, there's this knee jerk. Uh, it got fabulous reviews, you know, I, and I, I've had to review books um, and they don't give you any time. You know, usually they, they, you know, they slap it down and you've got to read day and night and you still can't even finish it. So it got these five star reviews and nobody talked about the fact that because I think they had to read it so quickly and that's just the way it works in modern times. Nobody talked about the fact that aside from whatever you think about the style of the writing, 
it's actually very boring. It's almost impossible to read in one sitting. Like, it's, it's a bathroom book. It's actually not bad. I've got it in my bathroom, and I take it out every once in a while. I read, you know, one or two of the chapters, and I usually end up being a bit depressed by it because it's, mm. in a way, it's kind of like the worst of Bob Dylan. Some of it is terrific, and some of it is just awful. And you think, with, with a lot of modern books now, you think, gee, back when they had the editors, that was a good thing. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. I pretty much agree with all of that. Power to you if you have fun reading that book. But I did not. <laughs> Let's just end on something positive because you presumably saw him live for the first time at some point in the last three years. How yes. was how was that? Oh my god, it was incredible! And I love his recent persona on stage. Like he just looks like he's having so much fun in the last maybe ten years of his performances. Before I saw him live, I would go on YouTube and just like watch those because he's, you know, he's messing with the structure of the song. He's like the king of back phrasing, which is like you wait a beat and then you say all the words at once. Oh, is that what um, it's called? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's something that like Barbara Streisand is known for doing, <laughs> which is how I know about wow. it. But it's just so much fun. And I really don't understand when people say that he's no good live. I mean, he's just radiating this energy that the whole crowd is like enraptured by. And I do wish, I do wish that it wasn't so gung-ho about not having phones out, not recording him. Cause isn't that like, he's making money off of bootlegs. What is wrong with having more bootlegs and for other people to be able to enjoy it? But yeah, I had an absolute blast at that concert. I actually left an exit that I wasn't supposed to at the end of it. And I saw someone get into a big black car and speed away. So it might have been Bob, but I can't say for sure. So yeah, that was one of the best days of my life. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in Studio 3 at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Roisin King and produced by Robin Guise. Digital imaging is by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. I can hear your trembling heart beat like a river. And recently you thought you've seen it all. But you're disappointed now with those who did not deliver. But it was you who set yourself up for a fall. I've seen thousands who could have overcome the darkness. For the love of a lousy buck, I've watched them die. Stick around, baby. We're not through. Don't look for me, I'll see you when the night comes falling from the sky.